My guest today is Glenn Weil, a researcher at Microsoft, a visiting senior research scholar at Yale University, and co-author of the new book, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. He joins me today to discuss his book and convince me why Western governments need to abolish private property, ditch one-person, one-vote democracy, and adopt an array of other radical proposals in the name of saving civilization. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Boy, I, I'm almost frightened after re- uh, reading that intro. It's the, the expansiveness of what this conversation – I don't know if I can wrangle this conversation if we're going to be hitting all those topics. So I'm going to do my best uh, with your help. Now, as, as the title of the book says – you're advocating radical solutions. Not you're not tinkering around the edges, and I, I guess if the book came out in 2009, I, I think that would be that would have been fantastic. It probably would have found a very sympathetic audience, maybe even me, because everything looked like it was in chaos. Things don't look so bad now. Economies are recovering. At least in the United States, we have very low unemployment. We have you know decent wage growth. Maybe it's picking up. So when you look at what's going on in advanced economies right now, why do you think that we need what I mean what's broken that we need before we get into the solutions? What what is the what is the big problem that we're fixing here? I don't think our big crises right now are cyclical. I think that they're secular. They're they're long-term ones. There's a long-term rise in inequality. There's a long-term stagnation of the rates of growth of economies where people aren't seeing the chance of having a better life than their parents had. There's a long-term deterioration of our political situation that's undermining faith in, you know, established institutions that are, you know, critical for our liberty. So I think for all, it's these long-term crises rather than a short-term uh, outcropping like we saw in 2009 that we're trying to address in this book. I mean, are you sure these are really long-term problems? I mean, I mean, economic growth. There is a there is a long-term problem, which is a demographic issue, uh, which we're not, you know, we're not, you know, uh, we're, we don't, we're not generating kind of population growth, which you know, really, and expanding labor markets really drove a good chunk of economic growth in the post World War II period. So that looks like that's, I mean, that's like a long-term issue. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily an issue you address in the book, yeah. and. It seems to me what we often do is we compare the economy today to what it was like in the immediate post-war decades. And I think that's kind of an unfair comparison. It's a very different period. You're coming out of a war, uh, d- different demographics. Is a promise that we're, we're looking at what the economy is like today and we're just making a, a kind of a bad comparison and saying, boy, it seems so much worse than the 1950s or 60s. We had much faster growth, not necessarily in all areas, but... Is that the issue, or is there something well, bigger I, that I'm missing? Here? I think I think the bigger thing that I see is that so first of all, growth rates now are the lowest in the last 30 years on average than they've been since the beginning of industrialization for any sustained 30-year period. So this is not just versus that exceptionally fast-growing period after World War II. This is really a very low, persistent uh, growth regime that we're in today. But beyond that. We've at the same time seen this incredible increase in inequality at the precisely the moment when we were are you promised. Talking, are, you about, are you talking about income inequality? Income inequality, right. wealth inequality in the United States, uh, overall the growth of wealth, the decline in the share of income that's going to labor rather than to capital. These are big macro trends that are have been going on really for the last 30, 40 years. And they happen at the same time that we were promised faster growth in the 1980s and so forth, from tax cuts, deregulation, et cetera, we were expecting that this inequality would, you know, see actually the rise of a more competitive, dynamic economy. And we've actually seen things go in the opposite direction in the same way that, you know, you think of stagflation in the 1970s. 
Uh, that was a time when we expected if you have a bit more inflation, we'll get faster growth. That didn't work out. And I think that caused a lot of people to question existing economic institutions. And I think the same thing's happening today, but on this longer term trajectory. And do you think there's any risk with sort of a tra- you know, extrapolating those trends forward, saying that uh, we, we will have you know, more inequality, we'll have you know, growth won't pick up, even though there's, you know, there's certainly people out there who think we're on the verge, perhaps, of another productivity boom, whether it's generated by AI or, or some other technology. Do you have, do you have any doubts that, like, that these trends are sort of, sort of locked into place? And that you're, and, and I, I don't think anything is locked into place. I think the way, the way that the, the fundamental problem that we're facing is precisely our unwillingness to innovate in social institutions and the way we innovate in technology. You know, you come along with a new flashy form of AI, blockchain, whatever, people get excited about it. Uh, whereas if you think about innovating in our social institutions to keep up with that and to allow technological progress to continue, even though, by the way, that's exactly what happened every couple of decades since the birth of the modern era, right. we saw radical changes in social institutions. But we haven't, in the in the last really 30, 40 years, allowed for radical changes in our social institutions to keep up with the radical changes in technology. So that is what I think is holding well, us back. Um, why, why don't you think that's changing? Why, why don't you think we're seeing that sort of similar innovation sort of on the institutional side as we, as we hopefully we're, we're seeing on the technological side? Well, I mean, look, what are the innovations we saw since the beginning of industrialization? We saw the beginning of democracy and eventually universal suffrage, the end of slavery, the end of child labor, uh, the rise of labor unions, the beginning of uh, the welfare state, mass democracy, international institutions that regulated trade and that created global free trade. I mean, these are huge changes, right, that we saw every 20, 30 years during that period. And roughly since the fall of communism, what, what, have we, what, what real innovations have there been in our institutional structures? Well, well, ma- point well, ma- well, maybe that. Well, I think I think that's my point. Uh, maybe this is sort of a societal preference that we don't want those kinds of big changes. Yeah. Well, and I think that you could say the same thing for technology. Right. You know, people. Some people are luddites. They don't want to see the new waves that would bring us technological growth. Right. But I think the thing that's naive is to think that without changes to our social institutions, that we can have continuing technological progress that benefits everyone. I don't think that's ever happened before. Right. There's always been. Uh, at least as much social change to accompany technological change, and that's what we're falling behind. Okay, on. and so, so sort of built into all this is also is a, it's a technological forecast. Even though we've seen sort of uh, you know these very low productivity rates, and you have plenty of people saying, "Listen, uh, it, 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 take your pick. You know, AI, robotics, three D printing, uh, gene editing. None of it's really going to add up to much." What you're, what you're saying then is all this is going to add up to a lot, and so we have a lot of change coming. So this is partially a forecast that we're going to have a lot of more innovation and technological growth. Um, it's not like, a, so it's kind of, so you don't only buy the Robert we, only, Gordon. Only if we have the social institutions right. to allow that. Okay. And I think that's consistent with what Robert Gordon said, actually. What Robert Gordon said was that, you know, the period for, through the 20s, through the 70s, not just purely technological, it's that we had social institutions that dramatically changed to make that possible. Uh, We had, you know, the New Deal coalition changed so many things about society. We had really active antitrust enforcement. There there were huge, huge social changes. And without without these and without changes, there'll be what a a pushback against the technological change. How will it hurt? There will be a pushback against technological change and the existing structures of power will effectively prevent 
the flexibility that we need in order to make these things possible. Oh. It's not just governmental change. It's right. the it's the private monopolies that stand in the way of that innovation. Right. All right. So uh, we've uh, we've sort of tantalized the audience long enough about what the changes you're actually advocating yeah. are. Maybe the I don't know the, the sort of the headline headline change has to do with with property and who owns it. Right. So we have a new system of property ownership in which everyone would self-assess the value of their properties that they own. Uh, Let's think about the radio spectrum, which maybe some people are listening to us over, uh, is a good example of that. People who own particular pieces of spectrum would self-assess the value, Mm -hmm. and then they would pay a tax on that value, and then anyone could take the property from them at that self-assessed value. And so that tax would sort of gradually shift ownership into the public domain and away from individuals because the value generated from that tax could fund an equally distributed social dividend. And on the other hand, the fact that people would not want to set too high of a value and therefore leave their properties open to being taken by other people would give an option to others to purchase them as well. All right. Now, you've chosen a less frightening example for some people. The more the more sort of alarming example it might be basically everything you own, really. I mean, homes, uh, your personal property, all that would sort of be subject, because when we talk about radical markets, it's sort of markets for everything and every aspect, nook and cranny of your life. So how would that work sort of on a, uh, on, on, on a personal level? Well, the first thing to notice is that I started with that example because that's the example. Now, now listen, I'm not frightened by it. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't yeah. believe in my possessions. You yeah. can take about everything as long as you don't yeah. take away my phone. Yeah. I don't have a lot of material possessions, yeah. even the books, all, uh, all on my, so I'm, I'm not a big possession guy. But now I've interrupted you. How does it work with you? Look, we we, we start with Spectrum because we think that's the best place to start. We want to start with Spectrum. We want to start with IP. We want to start with public land Mm -hmm. leases. We want to gradually move into business assets on there to homes and only there onto these like (laughs) uh, your phone or whatever (laughs) it is, right? Right. And the reason why we want to do it that way is because we actually think that those other things have the most potential. These very personal things Maybe it frightens people, right. but also, you know, not much of the wealth in the economy is actually stored that way. So that's not really a major source of potential growth and so right. forth in the economy. But housing but, is a big deal. And we, housing we, is a and big deal. And I think in the, in the podcast, which will end up airing probably just before yours, uh, it's an issue we really get at. Because to me, it seems sort of a, a tr- profoundly weird that we had this major housing crisis in 2008. And now you're hearing again uh, about housing being a huge problem, uh, affordable housing, these kind of high productivity cities, no one's building any housing. So it seems like for the last decade, housing's been a huge economic issue in one way or the other. Yet, for the most part, politicians don't even talk about it. not even really the housing crisis. So that's what that's one of the things I find really interesting is what you're th- how you're thinking about housing and how. how well, there, there's really two right. fundamental problems with housing. One has to do with the lack of dynamism, mm-hmm. and the other has to do with the inequality. And, the la- and I think they're tied together. So, uh, you know, this is related to what we were talking about before. There's a great app called City Builder that you can check out online, mm-hmm. which basically lets you circle collections of houses in a city and figure out what they would be worth if you could get them all together and redevelop them. And it's often 3x the current value. And the reason is because, you know, you have to go through some incredibly complicated eminent domain procedure at present right. in order to redevelop places. And so it doesn't happen. And that's one major reason we don't have the housing supply. But it's also because the value that's captured by that is held by a small number of people who have these uh, often large chunks of land and who hold out against uh, better, more productive uses of that land. 
And under this system, both of those problems would be solved. Everything right. would have a fluid price that would turn over to its best use, but also the value of it would be redistributed more equally so that everyone could afford a fair share of the housing economy rather than having anti-market uh, solutions like rent control, right. which stand in the way of productive development. This shows how actually by leaning into the market, by taking advantage of the market, we can actually have a more... Right. You're not trying to solve problems through, uh, uh, through regulation or government mandate yeah. by extending markets... Uh, more deeply into society. Exactly. So so take that idea, your idea, and applying it. To, I mean, my Lord, my Twitter timeline, I have a lot of people from San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Every other tweet is about housing. That's where I'm from. Uh, well, there I'm you, from Palo Alto. Right, right. So, so, so apply that to what's going on in Silicon Valley and San Francisco to the housing sort of crunch there. How would that play out? Yeah, so under our system, uh, first of all, ownership would become much cheaper, because the ta this higher tax mm -hmm. would reduce the capitalized value of all those assets. So the, the house, because you would expect to pay this tax on it, it, would fall by a lot. So people wouldn't be taking on all the debt that they take on that causes so many problems like we saw in the crisis, first of all. Second of all, it would be far easier to redevelop properties to build larger uh, uh, units, to, to build high-rises, et cetera. So there would be much more housing available. Third, um, a lot of these NIMBY issues we see where people don't want to allow their neighborhoods to be developed are because so much of their wealth is tied up in this house and they have so much debt against that. And so they don't want to take the risk of not being able to move if the housing values fall. Here, because all that would come way down, uh, that would go away. People would be much more like renters. And finally, we would have a bunch of revenue that we could use that would be redistributed to people so people could afford uh, to, to live in those areas uh, as these sort of partial renters. So along all these dimensions, just this one simple solution, even though it's very radical, right. could solve all these problems. And that's you know really the spirit of the book. We don't want a lot of complicated government regulation. We don't want a bunch of different agencies, each dealing with the thing and solving one problem, but making another problem even more worse than the problem they solved like Fannie and Freddie did, right? right? We want a simple solution that makes the system through a market work better. Right. And the, even though I, I just forced you to apply it to one city, this would be this would sort of be a yeah. national. Now, what is the sort of less ambitious version of this plan? Because I'm sure you, as you've done interviews, people are like, you know, this sounds more like, you know, your, uh, your spec script for your sci-fi movie in the future that we will have this radical different society. But is, is there a version of this that is sort of that I could see happening within the next five years or if I was the mayor of a city or, or something? Is there I mean, there's a is there a kind of a scaled down version of this? Yeah. So I think that there's a Listen, if it was a spe uh, spectrum. That's fine with me. Too. Yeah, I like. Yeah, that this, that's this, not an insult. This, I like the spec. The spectrum, I think, is a great yeah. example of that. It's a place where right now radio and right. television over the air stuff has been clogging up the spectrum that really needs to be mm -hmm. used for 5G, Wi-Fi services, et cetera. Uh, we've had a huge problem with that. So that's one area where already there's really strong interest in that from the Federal Communications Commission. I was just talking to someone about this. Oh, that's great. At the same time, we're thinking about natural resource rights, drilling rights for oil in, in the UK, talking about the possibility of North Sea oil uh, drilling rights and other uh, public resources like that. But maybe the most near term, actually, what will happen very soon is within the blockchain community. There's a ton of interest in using this for digital assets within the blockchain community, like domain addresses. We've been talking to people, especially within Ethereum, which is the second largest mm -hmm. cryptocurrency, and they're doing a lot of projects on trying to implement a system like this. All right. All right. Uh, when we publicize this podcast, we're going to lead with the blockchain stuff. We're going we're, we're to put that right in the, uh, uh, in the uh, first uh, Absolutely. <laughs> in general, what I would say is all of these things, the turnout is almost 
100% proportional <laughs> to the extent to which you manage to mobilize the blockchain community, but there's a huge number of people around uh, that's, And just, I don't want to focus entirely on this idea, yeah. but uh, the idea of, you know, of this, uh, applying this to my personal life, to, to my home, my property, how comfortable would you be in that kind of world? So where, I actually, where, where everything can be auctioned off, everything is sort of, it's, it's kind of owned commonly, you're applying, you're applying a, pri- you're a price to it, a, a value to it. Would you be comfortable living in that sort of I, Well, I, I think it could make us have a much fairer and better world. I mean, I have a friend who um, I met actually on this trip, the trip touring for this book, who told me that she read Marie Kondo's book. I don't know if you've ever read that about the life-changing magic of tidying up. Mm-hmm. And, oh, actually, and, I, I and she has this it. idea that you pick up any object in your house and uh, you have to say, if it doesn't give me joy, I throw oh, it Oh, no, away. I do know this. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what she did is she did a quantitative market-based version of this where she picked up every item in her household and she said, how much joy does this give me? And she listed it all on eBay mm-hmm. at the willingness that she'd you know, take to send that to somebody. And now what she does, she never has to worry about tidying up her apartment. The market does it for her. People just pick off things in her apartment <laughs> and she sends them. And I actually think, you know, for millennials like me who are used to Airbnb, who are used to, you know, opportunities and experiences mm-hmm. rather than holding on to possessions forever, it's a very attractive vision of the future. And and is there any also a downside just from the, you know, kind of a business point of view about sort of a lack of, I always hear about certainty. If people want to, if we want to invest in the future, we need a lot of certainty. This would seem to be to generate lots of uncertainty. I think that what businesses most need to invest is opportunity more than certainty. Mm-hmm. The you know there there was lots of certainty under feudalism that everything in 400 years would be the same way it was 400 years ago, uh, but that wasn't well, clearly there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum. Yeah, like, yeah. There's certainty and then there's certainty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, look, people can buy under this system as much certainty as they want. They can raise the price if if it's worth them to pay for certainty. They can get that certainty. That's just how insurance works, right? When you you know ship your goods when you're moving house, you assess the price on everything and you decide whether uh, it, you know, it's important to you to hold on to that thing or whether you, know, you don't want to pay for that extra insurance. And, and this would be that way too. People could- I would also find this mentally exhausting. I, I mean, you know, may, you know, maybe, maybe you wouldn't, but you know, thinking about what, you know, what is the value of all this? How would I put a value on this? What would it be like if all of this uh, sort of you know, was taken away? And, and I, I would, I mean, maybe it's just me. I, I, I would, this would be, yeah, but, but, this would be paralyzing. But, 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 now, but, my re, now my producer, Matt, much smarter guy, you know, lives life on the edge. It would be fine for him. For me, I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, but see, I, I think everyone could choose the way that they want to do things because, yeah. of course, if you don't want to worry about this, just overprice your right. stuff by 300%. Sure. You'll pay a bit extra tax. The problem is that at present, you know, it, it's a little bit like the carbon tax. Right. In the carbon tax, you know, the reason that that's such a valuable thing is right now we pay the cost for everybody else's carbon emissions, but not for our own carbon emissions. Right. In, you know, in our society, we pay the cost for everybody else's hoarding, but not for our own hoarding. But that cost is still there. It's just now you'll bear that cost rather than pushing that off onto other people. So if you want to save money and be like Matt and, you know, really aggressively price your things, sure, that's great. Otherwise, just pay a little bit extra for that peace of mind. That's fine if you want to do that. And then if at some point later you want to hire Matt to help figure, you know, out what you want to do, if you want it, we'll make a market in that. Uh, a few, uh, some of your other ideas. Uh, again, uh, something called quadratic voting. First of all, what's wrong with voting and democracy that we need to change how we vote? 
I mean, right now, the real problem we have is we don't have a lot of democracy. Why? Because we have an increasingly diverse society where we can't rely on one person, one vote to protect minorities. And that's true on the right and the left. On the right, you know, there are deeply religious people, gun owners, who don't trust you know, one-person-one-vote democracy to protect their rights. On the left, you've got ethno-racial and sexual minorities. Again, people don't trust one-person-one-vote democracy. So we look to judges, we look to the Supreme Court to fix this for us rather than relying on democratic institutions. And that's a real problem. I mean, that creates a lot of populism. Uh, that creates a lot of backlash. So what we want to do is create a system where minorities can protect themselves rather than relying on judges to protect them. Right. And so it's, it's kind of maybe it's a tricky one to describe quickly. But again, you would you would uh, it's, it's kind of a weighted voting system, which you would have sort of a, a well, I'm going to let you describe it. Actually. Everybody would get a equal budget of voice right, a budget of right that they could spend on different issues. And they would use that budget to buy votes mm-hmm. using those credits. But according to a particular rule, which is that it would get increasingly expensive to buy more votes on a particular issue. So while you could do that, you would have to pay a cost for it. Right. What is the closest real-world example where this has been tried? Um, well, we've used it for polling mm-hmm. in practice, and, it, and it's also been used a lot in the blockchain world. Mm-hmm. Um, and But also corporations used to have rules like this. So it used to be before the modern era when you had one share, one vote, that often you would actually have rules where uh, individual shareholders got uh, you know more votes if they had more shares, but not one for one. And many of them actually resembled a rule quite like this. Um, two other issue. Uh, two other issues. One is uh, immigration. Yeah. Uh, you you would allow someone to sort of bring in, bring over their own their own immigrant. How does that, how would that work? Yeah. So that that's a system that in some ways, in many ways, we already have. People can bring over au pairs. Uh, right. Family farms can bring over workers to work for them. You would expand this. Uh, we would we would expand that system so that every citizen would have an equal right to sponsor a migrant rather than just people in some very particular circumstance, usually wealthier people or corporations, so that every citizen could benefit from migration. So we would build the support from the general public for migration that we need to allow for the benefits that I think anyone who believes in the free market system knows that immigration can have. Right. I mean, what what I'll often hear is that we need more high-skill immigrants, but we don't need a lot more low-skill immigrants. So how would how would that what, what would be your counter to that? Why why would we want to bring in a lot more potentially low-skill immigrants? Which is system you know you're not because you're not putting a, you're not saying these are the kind of immigrants who are eligible. It's it's it's, it's anybody, right? Look, we we basically believe in the market. We believe that every citizen should have an equal right. And we mean your sponsor. co-author, who I'm not sure I even mentioned. Eric Posner Posner is a law professor right, right. at University of Chicago. Right. Look, we believe in the market. We believe that every citizen should have an equal right to sponsor visas, and then the market will sort out who wants to come and who doesn't want to come and who's you know willing to give some benefits to the current uh, citizens who sponsor those visas. And if those are high-skilled people, sure. But why should we have some government bureaucrat deciding for us who has the skills and, and setting up a system like that? Why shouldn't American citizens have a right to determine the future of migration? Yeah. Why do you think that telling people that this is a market-oriented solution, why, pe- why, why in the United States today, a lot of people will find that persuasive? Look, in fact, I think you could argue that right now people aren't so thrilled with market or I mean, I believe as the vice president said, Pence said the market's been sorting it a long, out a long time and, and Americans been, America's been losing. There he is, Republican vice president saying something like that. I think there's a lot of skepticism toward the market. But so I was saying this is a market-oriented solution. Some people would say, well, th- you've lost me right there. Well, I think that uh, people are skeptical towards markets because 
we don't really have real markets. We have monopolies everywhere. It's the monopolies that people are upset about, not the markets. And we need to show people the potential of markets. You look at somewhere like China, people are very enthusiastic about what the market has been doing for them because it's been, it's been improving their lives. And the problem is because we've been allowing monopolies to dominate things, increase inequality and hamper growth, it hasn't been paying those dividends to us here in the United States, and we need to renew people's faith in that possibility. A couple things on, on, on tech, data, data is a new oil. You want everyone to have their own access uh, to data, to be paid for the data, because we feel like we're giving people, all we're getting back is these free services, which just isn't enough. So you're saying that the fact that I'm able to search for free and you know find all this great information, that is not enough for what I'm giving up in terms of uh, personal data. Yeah, I think the fundamental problem is that data is not the new oil. Oil came from dinosaurs that were fossilized millions of years ago. That's not where data comes from. Data is not just sitting there to be found. Data is I agree. It's a, whole, it's a horrible, to me, it's a horrible analogy. But exactly. Sorry. Exactly. So that's the problem. That's the problem is that data is not the new oil. Data is the new work because it's created by all of us every day. And those services that we get to use, they're fine. They're nice. They're great. I'm not saying that I don't enjoy those things. I, 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 you know, I use my phone as much as I think you do. But what we're but I don't sit getting, around thinking, boy, I'm being, I'm, I don't feel like on a daily basis I'm being taken advantage of. Well, that's why, because, why, why, that's why, because you don't know of all the ways that it's being used. You don't know the way that the conversations it's a false that you're having. It's a false consciousness. Yeah, you, you don't, well, you don't know the way that the conversations right. that you're having online are being used to train translation systems. You don't know that that Google Assistant that you're talking to was trained based on all the conversations that you were having in the past, making it more useful. For yeah, and so that sounds all, great. So, you, well, you, but you're producing the value that's going to you, but also to other people. And why shouldn't you be compensated? I mean, if you were a, a a worker producing a nice car, you wouldn't be happy just to say, "Oh, well, I'm glad someone's getting a car. Maybe I'm getting a nice car too." You would want to actually be directly compensated, and and the reason you'd want to be is because it would make you more productive. Because if you're being compensated for the value that you add, you'll add more value. I would I would do more searches. I would would I, would well, I, not ta- just would I talk searches. to my assistant more? You, you, or or for example, if you, if there's some you know technical economic topic that you're talking about, I don't know if you speak another language, but maybe if you were speaking in two languages with someone on Skype, they might ask you to translate some phrase which is really mm-hmm. useful to them, so that they can get better at translating. There, there's all sorts of applications where right now we're not adding the information that's most valuable because we're n- they're not being transparent and open with us about the way that it's being used. Sure. And 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 again, sort of the way this would probably uh, this, the way this would work is, is how 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 would that how as as I say on the online uh, uh, trivia shows that I play, how would this end up in my PayPal account? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great example. <laughs> so I think that there would be standardized rates that would probably be negotiated by. Um, some sort of uh, organization on your behalf, either a data labor union that would negotiate collectively for uh, people or some sort of a data agent. In fact, uh, spoiler, we're going to have a computer scientist, uh, Pedro uh, Domingos, uh, and he has talked a bit about a data union in his his book, The Master Algorithm. Oh, that's great. I I have to check that out. He's He's a great guy. Uh, I love his work. The first data labor union was actually established last week in, uh, or a couple weeks ago in Holland by a Dutch uh, member of the European Parliament. So this is this is very much happening right now. Those could negotiate standardized rates for you. And then your experience online would just be, you know, as you're doing things, as you're, uh, you know, enjoying yourself, you might be occasionally asked, oh, could you identify this photo for us? Could you tell us what's happening here? Uh, it'll help our algorithms. 
and you would know in the background that you were accumulating some money from that and that it was being deposited every month and you could check on the rates and, and it would guide you to things that were worth your time and away from things that weren't worth your time. And how much could I make on that? Well, I think at present you could make about 500 to to $1,000 a year, someone of your you know, social class and so forth. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what any of that means. <laughs> so, exactly. so, 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 somewhere you know, like that. Elite. But, but, elite level. Elite, elite level, level data yeah, I'm giving. Exactly. I'm really generating exactly. high quality data. And, and then, but then, you know, AI is growing, right? right. You know, all, all, all of the. All of the, you know, Google, Facebook, these guys are valued so high, not just because of the current revenues, because, but because of the growth in the AI economy that's expected. Right. And if AI ends up as 10% of the economy, we calculate this could yield about fifteen dollars to $20,000 for a family of four in the United States. So it could grow to really be a lot of money. Right. Uh, you mentioned some of these big technology companies. I know you probably have some thoughts on that. I, in fact, I remarked to you earlier when you got here that I had, I had watched you uh, at a University of Chicago conference on big technology companies and antitrust and regulation. Yeah. So what so what do you, so what do you think the problem is if any with today's sort of large technology companies Facebook Google Amazon Well I mean Apple. There, there's several they, problems they, they, there's several problems and they're diverse they're right. different from the different companies but you know one issue is this uh, data issue that we're not being compensated for the data everything is fakely free mm-hmm. um, that's a problem a second problem is that they're buying up lots of uh, small startups mm-hmm. that could potentially disrupt them and that's sort of choking off the ecosystem. Are you, how sure of that are you? I mean, because to me, that's like the most persuasive, for me, that's the most persuasive argument to do something is that, yeah. is that you have these small companies that are never getting a chance to scale. You know, uh, they, they'll argue that, well, we one, we're providing an off-ramp you know, for these entrepreneurs and therefore more people become entrepreneurs and that we're out, then we'll, help, we'll apply our genius to these small companies. We'll allow them to grow big in a way maybe they couldn't on their own. So you, 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 you feel confident that this is actually hurting productivity. Well, look, it, it's... I'm not saying that there aren't some benefits, and there are certainly some acquisitions that I think make a lot of sense. You know, you think about Facebook's acquisition of Oculus. Right. That's a really complementary asset. It's not like Oculus. As opposed to them buying like Facebook. Instagram, who's a potential competitor. Exactly. That that's what I worry about. And I'm not saying they haven't allowed Instagram to scale. They have. But the thing is, could Instagram have really competed with them and had a different sort of an internet and built in a, a way of us having a more visual experience online rather than just going along with Facebook, I think that that uh, might have been a very different world. Right. Uh, so um, uh, so what would you do with these companies? I mean, would, would you turn them into public utilities? Would you, would you uh, prevent them from making future acquisitions? Would you, break, would you, you know, break, up, break them up so to undo past acquisitions? So uh, first of all, I, I think there are some cases where we really could go back and break things up. I would certainly prevent the future acquisitions. Uh, you know, you think about Facebook and Instagram, there's not a ton of integration there between those services or Facebook and WhatsApp. They're under the same roof, but I, I, you know, they're not deeply integrated with each other. You know, Google and Waze is a much harder case because that's obviously become critical to the whole way that Google Maps works. But um, so, so yes, I, I would break up some of them. And there's some cases where I do think public utility is going to make sense at some point in the future. Facebook has not innovated very much. The whole experience of Facebook has not really changed very much. A lot of the core of the social network and identity aspects of Facebook, I'm not sure it makes sense for us to have Facebook owning our identity on so much of the, of the internet today. I think that's a real problem. You know, ultimately, something like Uber, it, it really makes sense for there to be a single network for those cars and, and not clear that that should be in private hands. So I think there's some real questions around that. So what, what do you think then... Uh, you know, because I write a lot about and have a lot of guests here talking about economic growth, innovation. So what does the economy look like, let's say, you know, 
your ideas become accepted. What does the economy look like in 50 years? Do we, you know, do we have much faster growth? Uh, do you think we have far less inequality? What does it look like? Well, look, uh, I think the truth is no ideas make everything work perfect. And I wouldn't want anyone to take these ideas and think that's the final point. We need to have more social innovation after these ideas are adopted. But yes, I think we can grow the economy by one-third using these ideas. I think we can near permanently reduce inequality to the levels that it was at, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, the sort of levels that it's at in Sweden. And I think that we can have a political system that works much more functionally. But again, new sources of inequality, new sources of rigidity will grow up and we'll need more innovation on social institutions to improve on this. This is a, as radical as it is, it's a reformist set of ideas. It's not a utopian set of ideas. I have a feeling there will be more talk about this. Uh, that, so. the, 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 the book is getting a, a lot of play. I think uh, it's so super interesting. You're a super interesting guy. Glenn, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, appreciate really it. Once